from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 17th. Today, a trove of data follows 76 billion opioid pills. Democratic candidates struggle to find their footing with Latino voters. And a bank that replaces money with time. My name is Scott Hyam. I'm an investigative reporter at The Washington Post. My name is Stephen Rich. I'm the database editor for the investigative team at The Post. On Monday, Scott and Steve got access to newly released data from the Drug Enforcement Administration. It's been kept secret for many, many years. It basically is the roadmap to the opioid epidemic. It traces the path of every single pill sold in America, from manufacturer to distributor to pharmacy. It shows exactly what the companies knew, when they knew it, and what they were doing with their drugs. Scott and Steve look specifically at hydrocodone and oxycodone, the two prescription drugs that are most abused in America. This is data on 76 billion pain pills distributed from 2006 to 2012. So the Washington Post has been investigating opioids for several years now, and this has been a target of ours for a while. We filed an open records request three years ago for it and were denied and have been trying to get it ever since. And when this data wound up as a part of a public court case, we and one other organization in West Virginia decided to intervene and try to make it public. So this data is at the center of a massive lawsuit in Cleveland. There are nearly 2,000 cities, counties, and towns that are suing the drug industry, about two dozen drug companies, for inundating their communities with pills. This database was made available to the parties in that lawsuit, to the plaintiffs suing and to the defendants, the drug companies. We intervened in that case and we asked that that database be made public now that it was part of a public court proceeding. So now that you've had a chance to look at this data, what does it tell you? I mean, it lays bare sort of where every community in this country stands on how many opioids spilled into their pharmacies. We are able to tell very granularly what the worst pharmacies are in terms of the number of pills per person that they were doling out to their communities. We're able to put states in context with other states, counties in context with other counties, and we're really able to sort of understand how pills on a day-by-day basis wound up in these communities. It is the most granular look at the opioid epidemic that we've ever seen. And what were some of the surprises that you saw there about who is doling out these pills, where these pills are coming from? 75% of these drugs were distributed by just six companies. Some of them you have heard of. They're household names. Others are not. But McKesson Corporation, which is the largest drug distributor in the nation, Cardinal Health, Amerisource Bergen. But then CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart. Those are the top six companies that are responsible for 75% of the drugs that were distributed and dispensed across the country. 
Some other surprising things, you know, everybody knows that West Virginia has been ground zero for this epidemic, and they have one of the highest or not, if not the highest overdose death rate. But places like Nevada have been saturated. South Carolina have been saturated. There's a number of towns that we never heard of before where they're getting millions and millions of pills, and they have hardly any people living there, maybe a couple of thousand people. There are some places where there are enough pills for every man, woman, and child to get 306 pills a year in wow. some of these tiny communities. And so if so many pills are going into one community, much more than anyone could conceivably need for medical purposes, it becomes obvious that this is how this addiction epidemic is happening. It certainly raises a lot of questions about the behavior of the companies and what they knew and when they knew it, what steps they took or didn't take to prevent these pills from going into these communities. This data shows that they had a very clear bird's eye view of the drugs going into these communities day by day, month by month, year by year. They knew what the pharmacies were ordering and they have a responsibility if they see suspicious orders. If the pharmacy one month is getting 2,000 pills and the next month orders 10,000 pills, they're supposed to flag that, report it to the DEA and stop those shipments. In many cases, they did not do that and those shipments just kept flying. Steve, what was the process of parsing through this data and figuring out what was actually there? So we've been sort of preparing for this for the last three years. And so when we finally got the data set, it was about 380 million records. And we honed in on like who was distributing the pills, where were they distributing them, what pharmacies were getting a lot of pills, and really just let the data tell us where the stories would go. Because you know, we have ideas of what this data would look like, but we never actually knew. And so for the first time, we were able to figure out where we should be going, who we should be talking to. And it's been a, an incredible roadmap. So if this data suggests that companies and pharmacies like Walgreens and CVS were an enormous source of how these drugs were getting into communities, and that in theory, they should have been doing more to stop these drugs from getting out, to flag situations where they're giving away way more pills than any community could conceivably need. Have you talked to the drug companies about this? I mean, is there a sense that they see this data and see that it suggests that they're responsible? Uh, no, they don't accept any responsibility. But, you know, the DEA has gone after Walgreens in the past and CVS. They have both been fined for violating the Controlled Substance Act for failure to report suspicious orders. After those fines, they promised that they would do better. Today, they say they are doing better. They put systems in place to try to prevent diversion of their drugs. But for many, many years, the DEA has been complaining about not just those pharmacies, but other pharmacies not paying attention to doing their due diligence and making sure that these drugs are not reaching the black market. I mean, there was a CVS store in Florida at one point that became so popular with drug addicts and drug dealers, they would camp out in the parking lot of the CVS waiting for it to open up. Mm. And there was a line in the parking lot. People were high. They were in out-of-state plates. They were filling multiple prescriptions from doctors who were in lots of other places. Mm. They had out-of-state licenses. It was very clear to the people inside that store that these were not pain patients. In fact, when the DEA went to the CVS store and said, why are you doing this? And the pharmacist said, well, you know, at 2 o'clock, we cut off 
all sales of oxycodone and hydrocodone. And the DE agent said, well, why do you do that? And she said, well, we want to save our medications for our real pain patients. Hmm. So these stores knew, or they should have known what was going on, just common sense looking out into the parking lots and seeing who these people are who were filling these prescriptions. These were not people who were in pain. These were people who were addicted to drugs or were dealing drugs. And so these new numbers from the DEA basically confirm anecdotes like that, that people could have looked on paper and seen that there were pharmacies that should have known, that did know that what they were giving out wasn't helping people. They not only confirm those numbers, but they help us to find so many more that look just like them, that were never fined, that the DEA has never investigated. And so it really does provide a roadmap to where the worst places are that no one has ever known about. Why would the Drug Enforcement Administration not want this data out there? Because this is, I mean, these are problems that they're dealing with trying to get a hold of. And and why wouldn't they want to make it clear to the rest of the country what they're up against. We're told that the data, when it came to the plaintiffs and was provided by the judge as part of this lawsuit, that it was such a mess that they couldn't make heads and tails out of it. They had to literally go out and hire computer PhD experts to make sense of this data. And so the DEA wasn't even really using this data in a meaningful way. And I think that According to our sources within that agency, the database basically shows what the DEA should have known and could have done but didn't. And this is a point that the industry makes, that the DEA had this bird's eye view as well. Why didn't they do something? And that's an important question. So now that you have this data and you've started to dive into it and to glean some conclusions from it, what are you doing next? We are very interested in a lot of things in this data. The The possibilities are endless. Our biggest priority at the moment is making this data available to everyone, especially to people in smaller news outlets who would like to be able to use it for their own reporting. We understand that this is a very large data set and that most organizations do not have the capability to parse it. So we are doing the parsing for you, and we're going to be posting all of that quite soon to allow the reporting in these communities because we can't get to all 3,000-plus counties to report on everything. But there are reporters in all of those counties, and we think that it is a very valuable tool for all of them. And there are citizens in all these counties who want to know why this happened and who's responsible. So if you're sitting in West Virginia or Tennessee or Nevada or South Carolina, you can go on to our website, hopefully starting tomorrow, and you'll be able to start looking at exactly who shipped the drugs to your community, which pharmacies dispensed the most amount of drugs, when did this happen, what kinds of drugs. We've traveled a lot as part of this project into places like, you know, West Virginia and Ohio and Pennsylvania. And those places have been ravaged. And every single community, everybody knows somebody who has died from this epidemic. And so we want to make this data public as a public service to citizens across the country so they can access this data for themselves. Scott Hyam and Steve Rich are investigative reporters for The Post. This story was also reported by Sari Horwitz. You can find links to all the data from their reporting at postreports.com. 
describe like what is the current landscape of what 2020 Democratic candidates are talking about when it comes to immigration? By and large, what you're hearing from this Democratic field is we want to create an immigration system that is very, very different from what Donald Trump has created. We would not build walls. We would not put kids in cages. In fact, we want one that says to immigrants, we welcome you into the United States, not one that puts up fences, puts up walls, both symbolically and literally. The reason that they're separating these little children from their families is that they're using Section 1325 of that act, which criminalizes coming across the border. Some of us on this stage have called to end that section, to terminate it. There was a moment at a recent debate where we saw uh, a moderator ask the candidates. Raise your hand if if your government plan would provide coverage for undocumented immigrants. All the hands on the stage shot up. And right now, what we're seeing is a division in this Democratic field between some candidates who favor a dramatic change to border security that would decriminalize border crossings that are now considered unlawful. And on the other side, you have some Democrats that say, well, hold on a second, that goes a little bit too far. But of course, the difference in how that happens is is what we're seeing start to bubble to the surface. Sean Sullivan is a national political reporter for The Post, and he's been reporting on these differing stances on immigration among Democrats, specifically among Latinos in the Democratic Party. And Sean said that he realized how stark that split is when he went to the LULAC conference in Milwaukee. So LULAC is an an acronym for the League of United Latin American Citizens. This is the country's oldest Hispanic civil rights organization, which has a very big membership nationally. And in this convention, I talked to people from Iowa. I talked to people from California that came from all over to meet to discuss a lot of these issues. And groups like LULAC can be very, very pivotal in very, very close elections. So if we see another race like we saw in 2016, where you have states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, that are narrowly, narrowly divided and are decided by very, very, very small margins. These groups can play a big role registering Hispanic voters, going into the community, ensuring strong turnout. I was struck by a couple of things that I heard from them, a couple of themes that emerged in in interview after interview. One was that there was a general feeling that this Democratic presidential field needed to pay more attention to Hispanic voters. They needed to go in to Hispanic communities, talk to voters, hear about their concerns, and recognize that those concerns are not just immigration, that Hispanic voters care deeply about the economy. They care deeply about health care. They care about many of the issues that the rest of the Democratic Party and the rest of the electorate cares about. And so there was a sense that Some of them felt the candidates were not spending enough time talking to them, listening to them. Some felt, frankly, that they were being taken for granted um, Hmm. by some of these candidates. Now, at this conference, we did see some candidates show up. There was a town hall where we had four candidates speak. But there have been events in Iowa, South Carolina, and other places where you're getting 15 candidates, 16 candidates, many, many more. And so I think for some of these Hispanic activists, they look at that and they say, well, 
hold on a second. If you have time to go to these early states, to talk to white working class voters, to talk to African-American activists in South Carolina, you should have the time to spend talking to Hispanic voters, learning more about what it is that they care about and what moves them to vote. When you were at LULAC, what did some of the leaders there say about these candidates and their policy positions when it comes to immigration? Well, I think they wanted to learn more about them. There was a sense that they they didn't know yet which candidate was necessarily going to be the strongest on a number of issues, but on the issue of border security, on the issue of health care for undocumented immigrants, there certainly were some strong feelings on both sides. Some activists I spoke to said, yes, it's a good idea to be providing health care for undocumented immigrants. This is something we should do. This is something that the Democratic Party should stand for. But others felt that we needed more moderation. Thank you for taking the time. I wanted to start by asking you. And I spoke to Domingo Garcia, who is the president of LULAC, who had some very, very strong feelings. What do you make of the of the party's shift to the left or, or on some of these proposals? And is that a good thing or is that a worrisome trend? I think there has to be some moderation. I disagree with the candidates' positions about providing health care to undocumented immigrants. When you have Americans, they don't have health care. Mm-hmm. So we got to take care of health care for all, or Medicaid for all, uh, before we can provide uh, undocumented immigrants health care. He made the point that, look, you have Americans now who don't have access to full health care coverage. Why are we talking about offering this to undocumented immigrants? Mm-hmm. And I think that was a snap decision by some of those candidates. Um, that wasn't thought thought through. Um, but again, we go back to we got to find a way to deal with those 12 million immigrants uh, and get them a pathway to legalization of citizenship. So his comments on that front were very striking. Here's somebody who is deeply involved in uh, politics and also a prominent member of the Hispanic community who is expressing some very, very strong feelings against what we're seeing some of these presidential candidates, many of these presidential candidates advocate. And is there also a concern that policy positions like decriminalizing border crossing, um, that that would, that that could be politically risky for Democrats from the standpoint of trying to appeal to more moderate voters? There absolutely is. And when you look at the way that a lot of Democrats view this election, they don't want to play into the attacks that we're seeing from President Trump. What do we hear from the president and Republicans? We hear that Democrats are the party of lawlessness. Democrats are the party of open borders. Democrats are the party of chaos. And we saw the Republicans try to use some of these scare tactics in the midterm elections. Largely, they didn't work. And Democrats felt last year that they didn't work because the party did not play into those attacks. Now what I'm hearing from some Democratic strategists is, as you have more of these candidates stand for these more lax and permissive border security laws, these more permissive health care laws for undocumented immigrants, even though the way President Trump is portraying them is not accurate, the risk there politically is that some voters might start to believe that it is. So the Democrats got to be conscious that they can say we're, we support a secure border. They can say we support uh, closing the asylum loopholes that are being abused right now. At the same time, being uh, compassionate and humane regarding the refugees and the immigrants that are already in this country. So striking a balance that kind of appeals to That's a broad cross-section. That, that I think will appeal to voters, like say, that white middle-class worker here in mm-hmm. Wisconsin, that can say, you know, I like other Democrats are for, but I don't know if I'm from open borders and having 
just people come in all the time. Mm-hmm. We got to tell them nothing about what we're for and what we are for. Was it surprising to you to hear some of these people talk about the need to be more moderate ahead of the 2020 election? It was striking because on a lot of these issues that these candidates are debating, there's a lot of unanimity. And so that would suggest that they've done their studies on what they think voters want. And the way that they are uh, conducting themselves seems to suggest that they think the base likes this. But it was striking to hear some of these leaders say, well, hold on a second. We need to pump the brakes on some of these things. It raised questions about why these candidates are talking about these things. Are they getting misinformation? Are they simply saying them because they believe in them and, and they don't worry about the politics of it? But it was certainly striking to hear Hispanic voters say that these policies, which ostensibly are designed to appeal heavily to Hispanic voters, are not necessarily what they want to hear. And I think that speaks to this really interesting situation that Democrats are in, because on the one hand, they do need to appeal to a Hispanic electorate and get people to come out to vote, and that it seems really smart in many ways to kind of for lack of a better word, capitalize on the outrage, what's happening to migrants on the on the southern border. But at the same time, there's a pretty clear risk of going too far to the left or talking about immigration in a way that President Trump can capitalize on. Yeah, it is a really, really difficult balance. And I think Democrats now are starting to recognize how difficult this is. And a lot of Democratic strategists look back at last year's midterm elections and how they were able to win back the House. And they point to these suburban swing areas where you have voters who are open to voting Republican, but also open to voting Democratic. These are not hardcore liberal activists. They're also not hardcore conservative activists. And so there is this ongoing debate in the Democratic Party. How do we hold on to those voters in 2020? How do we keep them from straying to President Trump or voting for a third party candidate or not voting at all? Uh, These are the areas that Democrats will have to win. And as they look at immigration, they understand this is a really, really polarizing issue. This is an issue that is an emotional issue for a lot of people, not just Hispanic voters. We see voters in other parts of the country respond very, very emotionally to the issue of immigration. It's a large part of why and how President Trump has been able to rile up his base. Immigration is something that is very important to Republican voters. And so finding that balance... Finding what appeals to Hispanic voters, what appeals to liberal activists, and what does not alienate these suburban swing voters that Democrats know that they need to hold on to, that's the challenge. And I don't know that they've figured out yet what the sort of perfect uh, you know, position to put themselves in to win those voters is at this point. Sean Sullivan is a national political reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Imagine an economy that doesn't run on trading money, but on trading time. I've had someone walk my dog. I've had curtains made. We've had culinary lessons and meals with neighbors. Abby Greer lives in Kent, Ohio. And she's part of a time bank, where members exchange an hour of their time and services for an hour of somebody else's. I've stayed at homes around the country for time credits. I've had skirts made, photography. I've had my hair done. (laughs) 
I've borrowed dog clippers, received mulberries, fresh eggs, and window washing. So you bank an hour if you did something for someone. You spend an hour if someone comes and does something for you. There's no hierarchy. Justin Moyer is a local reporter for The Post. Abby's Time Bank community is one of the largest in the country, with 1,200 members. But Justin says that there are dozens of other time banks across the U.S. It's kind of like Craigslist (laughs) crossed with uh, Wells Fargo or something like that. And just as your bank would have like a branch, her time bank has multiple branches in the region where she lives. And its users are all able to connect through this, you know, sort of central software. And as a result, they're constantly trading because it has so many users. There's a lot of engagement and there's a lot of community building getting done. I have earned time credits doing many, many different things. I'm only paid in time credits and not in cash. I've done interior painting for people. I'm sort of the pie baker in town, so I bake pies for time credits. What's revolutionary about time banks is that they treat everyone's time equally. So it doesn't matter if you spend an hour helping someone redraft their estate plan because you're an attorney and that's something you know how to do, or if you spend an hour helping someone plant, you know, cucumber seeds because you're you have a green thumb and you're familiar with that. Your hour is always equal. Time banks don't just, you know, allow for this sort of exchange of services. They provide a a road for people into the economy who might not typically have that road. So senior citizens, this is a way for senior citizens to remain active. They have skills. They spend a lot of time in the economy, theoretically. Now they're not in the money economy anymore, but they still have the same skills. So why should they just sit at home idle? They can do things to help their neighbors. Justin Moyer is a local reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. The Washington Post has a TikTok, which, if you don't know what that is, that's totally okay. But there's a new TikTok today about Post Reports. You can check it out by following me on Twitter at Martine Powers. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.